Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that we can be together this morning as a family of faith. And we ask that as we once more come before your word, the Lord, you would give us open minds and soft hearts to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would indeed be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said at the beginning of the service, we are on a journey together. We are on a 40-day journey that we are calling the Red Letter Challenge. A journey in which we are looking at the words of Jesus and daily putting them into practice. And as we've been going throughout this journey, we've started to see a couple of big themes, different topics that Jesus addresses. Over the past two weeks, we've been looking at two areas of life that Jesus has a lot to say about, and and we're using the words being and forgiving to talk about those two areas. In our week of being, what we looked at is what Jesus says about what it means to have a life-giving relationship with God. To know that we are loved by God, that we are welcomed into his family, and that this is apart from anything that we do. We are loved and welcomed by God simply because we are his children and because he has laid down his life for us. Which brought us to our second week, which was the week on forgiving, where we learned that we are deeply and extravagantly forgiven by God. That he forgives us all the things that we've done, all the things that, we've ever, that we ever will do. And he does this because he was willing to pay the price for our forgiveness. That he was willing to come into our worlds to die for us, to take our place so that we might receive mercy and grace. And we looked at how knowing that we're forgiven does transform our relationships, that that forgiveness overflows into our relationships with those around us. But this week in the Red Letter Challenge, we take kind of a turn. You see, the, the first two weeks were primarily focused on our relationship with God. There was some stuff in there about how that then re- uh, affects our relationships with each other, but it was really rooted in, in knowing our identity, knowing who God is and what it means to relate to him. But this week, we take a turn. As we look outward now to the relationships that we have with other people. And the word for this week is serving. We're going to be talking about what does it mean to serve those around us. To see the needs in our life and in our community and in our neighborhoods. And to respond to those needs in acts of self-sacrificing service. Jesus has a lot to say about serving. But I think that as we take this turn, it's going to be a challenging turn for many of us. Because the reality is is that we live in a consumeristic world. The phrase, just do you, is on the rise. You kind of can see it sometimes in social media. This idea that ultimately what really matters is us and our comfort. Uh, that, That we have a society where not only can we have our needs met instantaneously, but we can have our wants satisfied as well. And that even when we serve, we do it because it makes us feel good. Right? And we, and we serve in those ways that make us feel good. And then those ways that, that don't make us feel good or, or that are kind of inconvenient, well, somebody else will just kind of pick that up, right? Service is a countercultural thing because it means that I have to put myself in the back seat and put others first. But I think it's, it's going to be a challenging week for us, because, not just because of what we see in our broader culture, but the reality is, is that this consumeristic mindset has affected the church as well. How many of you are familiar with the 80-20 rule? Anybody heard this? A couple of you? Yeah, see, I I became familiar with the 80-20 rule when I joined church. 
When I first started coming to church, I heard about this. And basically, the 80-20 rule goes a little something like this. It says 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. It's about 20% who volunteer over and over and over again, not just to keep the church running, but to facilitate the church's outward-focused programs and, and community involvement. It's always the same people showing up while the rest just kind of sit and enjoy. And uh, I was just at a conference this past week with several other members of our staff team, and we were there with churches from all over the country, talking a little bit about, well, how do we help our people step into God's mission? How do we disciple people well? How do we raise up leaders? How do we call people to serve? And across the board, every church that was there, didn't matter their size or how effective their ministry or how many people they had on staff or what season of life their church was in, they all across the board said getting people to serve is one of the hardest things that we have, uh, one of the greatest challenges that we have as a congregation. This consumeristic mindset has infected the church, and, and the, the reality is that applies to us here at Trinity as well. Here's what I mean. How many of you remember this event? Worship Together, Serve Together Sunday. We did this on September 29th. That weekend, we kind of advertised it for like a whole month. So this weekend is going to be a special weekend. We're going to do this once a year. What we want to do is we just want to get together as a whole site family at one service, not two, so that we can worship together, so we can celebrate the good gifts God has given to us. And then uh, normally at the 10 o'clock hour when there would be a second service, we're going to do a serving fair where you can go throughout our building and you can meet different teams and, and find out where you can use your gifts to serve and to volunteer, both here at Trinity and out in our community. We hosted this event, and, and I have to be honest with you all, I, I've been back from seminary now for four years, and in our four years, that was the lowest attended Sunday that we've had on record. 252 people showed up when we usually bring about 400 on a weekend. We were lower not just by like 10 or 20, we were lower by over 100 people. Now, I don't share that with you guys like to shame you, okay, or to make us feel guilty, all right? That's not the reason I'm bringing this up. There are many people would say, well, pastor, it's because we went down to one service. I mean, and you, you took away the late service, and that's why it was hard for people to get there. And, and maybe there's a learning there for us as a staff team. But here's the thing. For one Sunday in four years, we asked you to slightly inconvenience yourselves for the sake of learning how you could serve, and over 100 of us didn't want to make that leap. And I bring this up because as a family of faith, we have to talk about problems when they come up, right? That's really the reason I want to address it is because I want us to say, you know, what can we do to work on our serve, okay? We need to work on our serve this weekend. That's really what this is all about because the reality is, is we know, we learned it this past week, we're forgiven, right? God still loves us. But, but this highlighted something, that there's a lesson I think that this week has to teach us as a church about what service is really all about. That's really what, is, what we're going to be looking at, what we're going to be diving deep into uh, this weekend is, is what does it truly mean to serve in the ways that God calls us to serve? One of the best places to go is to look at what Scripture has to say about service. And, and one of my favorite passages on serving is actually kind of a surprising one. It, it comes to us from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And uh, the Apostle Paul starts Ephesians uh, 2 and uh, 8 with, with these words. He says, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right? Now, the reason I love this passage is because it, it helpfully puts serving in its proper place. It says that your serving doesn't save you. Okay? Your serving doesn't save you. You are saved as a free gift from God, a gift of grace. This is a gift that God gives you. That, that's what ultimately saves you. And honestly, before I became a Christian, that's, that's what I thought about religious people and Christians in particular, is that they primarily served so that they could show God that they were good people and get into heaven. But what the Apostle Paul is saying very clearly here is he says, no, 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 your serving doesn't save you. All right? That's a gift that God has given you through Jesus Jesus paid the price for you so that you could be saved, so you could enter God's kingdom, so you could be a part of God's family. It's an amazing verse that lets us know that we are welcome in God's presence, that he loves us. But then notice what Paul goes on to say in the rest of that passage. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right after saying your serving doesn't save you, Paul then goes on to say, but your serving is important. He says it's because in serving, you begin to live the way God always made you to live. I love that he uses this word workmanship. Some, some translations translate it God's masterpiece. Others translate it God's work in progress. The point is, is that God has designed us to pour out our lives to help others in need. It's a part of God, how God made us. And that's part of the reason he saves us, so that we can serve freely, so we can serve without expecting something in return, that we can truly give of ourselves in ways that are life-giving to other people without looking for any kind of reward. And, and what Paul is really saying here is he's saying, if you want to know what it means to live a full human life, you will never know until you start serving another. And what I love is how modern psychology is, now, is just now catching up to this fact. Okay? How many of you have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Maybe some educators in the room uh, have heard about this. So, so Abraham Maslow, he was a, um, he was a psycholo uh, psychi uh, psychologist, and in the 1940s, he published a paper. And the paper was called A Theory of Human Motivation. And in that paper, he basically said, you know, there are certain basic needs that not only motivate people, but ultimately help us as human beings to be fully fulfilled. All right, to live fulfilled lives. We have these needs that, that in order for us to, to be fulfilled, these needs have to be met. He said there's kind of the basic needs at the bottom, our physiological needs, our needs for things like food and water and air. It's like you need these to survive. But then you have safety needs, and these are needs for things like shelter and clothing, for financial security and stuff like that, that our security needs must be met and that those motivate us. But then he goes on, he says, but we also have belongingness needs. Needs to be in relationship with people, to, to be loved and to have community and support. You go up a little bit more in the hierarchy and we also have esteem needs. Needs in which we receive respect and we feel valued for the contribution that we make to our communities and our families and our workplaces. At the very top, he says, ultimately this is what we need in order to be fully fulfilled. There are self-actualization needs. These are those needs that we have to be able to truly enjoy life to its fullest, to feel like we not just have a job, but we're working in kind of our dream job, 
that we're, that we're able to pursue our passions and our hobbies and our interests, that we can take vacation, that we can just enjoy unstructured time with family, self-actualization needs. And what Maslow was basically saying is he's saying, if you want to live a full human life, all these needs have to be met. But one of the things that was interesting is later in his career, as he put this theory to the test, Maslow ended up um, adding another need. He realized that there's a need higher than self-actualization. And he called those needs transcendence needs. And what he meant by that is he said that we're not really truly fulfilled as human beings until we're actually serving someone else. That's the reason he calls them transcendence needs, because it's we get beyond ourselves to freely serving someone else. Maslow, this, this great thinker and, and father of modern psychology, is basically saying if you want to live a fully fulfilled human life, you have to serve or you will never experience the deepest kind of joy that there is. And what I think is hysterical about all this is St. Paul knew this 2,000 years ago. That's what he was saying when he says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He says, you want to experience the abundant life that Jesus has for you? You will never taste it until you are learning to serve someone else. And so this weekend, I want us to dive in and think about serving. Because the beauty of serving is that that is really what it means to live the full life is when we are meeting other people's needs out of our abundance. And so I want us to ask the question this morning, what does it look like to serve fully? To get back in touch with the heart of God and and understand how Jesus views service. And to help us do this, I want to go to a very, very famous story that Jesus tells This story is found in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn there with me. Luke 10, verse 25 to 37. Before Jesus tells the story, we get a little bit about the context. It says that, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in response, Jesus told this story. It's a very famous story, a story we often call the story of the Good Samaritan, and here's how it begins. uh, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The story begins with a man in desperate need. A man who, traveling a very dangerous road from from Jerusalem to Jericho, is suddenly set upon by robbers, and, and not only is he beaten and robbed, he is left for dead by the side of the road. And as Jesus tells the story, we we learn three things really about serving others and meeting people's needs. The first thing we we learn is that uh, serving always involves a level of risk. It always involves a level of risk. We see that in what Jesus says next. He says, now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. 
One of the things that's interesting here is we see that there is a risk involved. We already know that this is a dangerous road, that you could be set upon by robbers. But now we're introduced to two religious people, a priest and a Levite. These are considered the most godly people in Jesus' society of the day. And what we see is something telling that I think speaks to a lot of us. And that is that these men go by and they see this man's need. Then they look at the risk and they keep on going. They see the man's need, they look at the risk, and they say, the risk is too great, I'm not going to go. And there's probably a couple reasons that they justified it, right? They might have been like, well, it's dangerous, it's getting dark, I need to get out of here, I can't stop to see if this guy is really in need or already dead, I'm just going to keep moving. I'm sure they had some religious excuses. They're like, well, what if he's already dead? I mean, the law says that if I touch like a dead body, that makes me ceremonially unclean and I'm a priest or I'm a Levite. I I don't want to like maybe compromise my relationship with God or something. So I'm just going to keep going. Or maybe it's a trap and this dude's just faking it. And if I go over there, I'm going to get jumped. So I'm just going to keep moving. You see, what we do is we love to rationalize the risk and say the risk is too great. We look at the needs around us and we say, yeah, I know that's a need, but that's really risky for me to do that. That might be risky for me physically, you know, responding to like a disaster situation, pulling off to the side of the road to help somebody out. That's, that might be physically risky. Maybe it's emotionally risky. Maybe we're looking at the situation and it's like, oh my gosh, the, the emotional and, and, and personal and psychological needs here, they're just so big, I'm not even going get, to get involved. We, get involved. we don't get involved for personal reasons. Like, well, what if I get hurt? What if I get hurt physically or emotionally? And oftentimes we look at the risk, we see the need, we look at the risk, and we keep on going. We say the risk, the risk is too great. The second thing we learn about serving, though, is that there's a cost to serving. And we see that embodied in the next character that Jesus introduces. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. See, the Samaritan shows us the cost of serving. What we see is that the cost is is actually pretty high. He sees a need and he realizes the only way I can meet that need is if I'm willing to spend some of what I have. And most likely if he's on this road, it's probably because he's either going to a market or coming back from a market. He either has this wine and this oil to sell or it's wine and oil that he now purchased with what he sold and he's bringing it home. The point is wine and oil, they were essential things in that day, but, but they cost some money. And they can be used to to drink and to eat, but they can also be used for medical purposes. Wine to disinfect and oil to help uh, the the skin heal and and bandages. And and what this Samaritan needed to do is he needed to pay some money basically out out of what he had. To use some of his money and his possessions to meet this man's need. To bind up his wounds. But more than that, there's a physical cost to it as well because it says he puts the man on his own animal. That means that the, that the Samaritan is now having to walk while this man rides. Furthermore, he takes him all the way to an inn and when he gets in there, he, he puts the man up in a room and tells the innkeeper, here's two denarii. Now, a, denari, a denarius was one day's wages. This guy gives up two days of his paycheck to make sure that this man is well taken care of. 
But on top of it, he then writes a blank check. He says, and listen, if he needs more help and you need to care for him more, just go ahead and care for him and I will pay whatever it costs when I come back. There's a high cost to serving because serving means that we actually need to be willing to give out of our supply. It will cost us something. It will cost us time. It will cost us energy. It will cost us money and possessions. Why? Because there is someone in need. And what we have can meet what they require. And again, I think oftentimes, many of us, we look at the cost and we say, cost is too much. Yeah, I know that there's that need, but, but, I, don't ha- but I really need this for myself. Uh, there's, there's not a whole lot to spare, so, so maybe somebody else can take care of that. And yet what I love about the Samaritan is that he sees the cost and the risk, and he still presses in. I don't know if we've thought about how risky it was for a Samaritan to do what he just did. It would have been risky if a fellow Jew came along and helped this man. But the Jews and the Samaritans in Jesus' day were actually people who were at war with one another. There was this long history of religious conflict between the two groups that often exploded into violence. And this Samaritan has to run the great risk of maybe he cares for this man, and then the moment the man wakes up and realizes who cares for him, this man turns around and takes advantage of him or kills him or curses him to his face. And yet the Samaritan is willing to take the risk and pay the cost to meet the need. And the question is, why? Which brings us to the third thing that this parable tells us about serving. And, that, that is, and, that, and, the, and the lesson is, is that there is a joy in serving. A joy in serving, namely the joy of giving life to someone else. Think about this for a moment That man is alive because the Samaritan took the risk and paid the cost. And although the man might wake up and curse the Samaritan, I have to wonder if upon waking up in that hotel room, seeing that he was not only bandaged and taken care of, but fed and clothed, suddenly learns that it was a Samaritan who did this for him, how would that have changed his life? There's a joy in serving because although it's risky and costly, what we see is that serving brings life to another person. Although our serving doesn't save us, it might save someone else. And that's really what Jesus is calling this lawyer to. The lawyer is saying, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, well, you tell me. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer answered him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now what I love is that Jesus tells the story in a very uh, important, uh, as, a, as an answer to this man's initial question. Do you remember what his question was? His question was, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you have to serve. Now you're like, wait, wait a second, we just said earlier that you, serving doesn't save you. But Jesus then tells this story, Right? Story about the risk and the cost of serving perfectly to bring life to someone else. And Jesus says, if you want your serving to save you, you got to serve like this. You need to serve perfectly. You need to be willing to take the greatest risks and pay the highest costs in order to give life to somebody else. See, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. He wanted to say, what can I do in order to, to earn eternal life? And Jesus says, if you want to earn eternal life yourself, serve this way. And that's what I love about Jesus' parables is because often the parable, just in telling it, teaches a different lesson, a deeper lesson. 
Jesus is saying you can't serve to save yourself, but you can serve in a way that gives life to others. That's what I want you to go and do likewise because there's only one person who served perfectly. And that was Jesus himself. We see this beautifully in like the last 48 hours of Jesus' life. The Gospel of John says that after Jesus has come into Jerusalem, he takes some time away with his disciples. And I love how John puts this. He says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, rose from the supper table. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He then poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So what I love in this story is that they've already, sit and, they've already sat down to dinner. Which means that somebody should have washed everybody else's feet before they got to the table. Because in the ancient world, you know, dusty roads, dirty roads, you know, you walk into somebody's house and your feet would have been caked with like mud and grime and dirt. And oftentimes, that was a job, cleaning people's feet was a job that only the lowest slave in the household would do. And yet here they're sitting down at the table and the one person who shouldn't have to do that job, the master of the feast, Jesus himself gets up from the table, takes off his outer robe, wraps a towel around his waist, and goes from disciple to disciple washing their feet. And it gets even more amazing because it says right before he does it, it says, during the supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. Think about that for a second. Jesus, the one person who, shouldn't, who should be served above all else, gets down on his hands and knees and washes the feet of the man who's going to betray him. Furthermore, he washes the feet of all of his disciples who will abandon him in the next 24 hours. Jesus shows what loving, perfect service looks like. But more than this, he takes it to its very extreme. For the next day, he is not only falsely accused, but wrongly executed on a cross. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus gives a reason why he does this. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus looked into our world and he saw our need. He took the risk by leaving his throne in heaven and coming down into our dark and dangerous world. He looked into our world, saw our need, and counted the cost. He knew that the cost would be that he had to lay down his life for us, for all the ways in which we haven't served, for all the ways in which we've been selfish, for all the ways in which we've withheld forgiveness from others, all the ways that we have not been generous. And Jesus said, all those wrongs I will pay. I am willing to, pay, to cut a blank check in order to meet their needs, a blank check that I will sign with my blood by dying on a cross. And the reason he did it was so that we might live. So we could be forgiven and welcomed into God's kingdom. Jesus is the only one who served perfectly. And yet, what I love is that he then invites us, forgiven people that we are, to join him in serving others. 
He says, just as you have been served by God, join me now as we go together and serve others. That's the reason I made you. That's the reason I saved you, so that you might join me and that together we would experience the joy of giving life to other people. I love how the writer of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame. When we look at that, what we see is that when Jesus calls us to serve, he's inviting us into that joy. He's inviting us to lay down our lives so that others might live and to experience the full joy that comes when we do of giving life to others. And so this week, my encouragement to you is lean in. Every single one of the days in the Red Letter Challenge are going to invite you to serve. Every day we're going to read words of Jesus talking about what service actually looks like, but then we're going to be invited to, in practical ways, serve the people around us with extravagant love. And so this week is don't shy away from those invitations. This is a beautiful opportunity to learn what it means to serve side by side with Jesus to experience the joy that he has for you. But my other encouragement is don't let this week just be a week. See, this is training for a life of service. And if you're sitting there saying, well, what do I do when this week is done? Where do I plug in to serve? We, we want to do things to help you get connected. Which is why later on today, you're going to get an email in your inbox. And in that email is going to be a document, and it's just basically a list of all the various teams and, and ways that you can serve both here at Trinity and out in our community. You're going to see descriptions for all these different teams. And then there's contact info for the person who's in charge of that, that team. And I would encourage you to read through that list as you're going through this week and saying, Lord, where do you want me to use my gifts to meet the needs of others, to give them life, to bless them? And then contact one of those leaders and say, how can I help serve? Likewise, if you are a leader and you get an email in your inbox from somebody saying, hey, I would love to serve with your team, answer that email. See that as somebody saying, I want you to help disciple me, to help me learn how to serve well and invite them to join you in the work that you're doing with Jesus. And so as we make this turn in the Red Letter Challenge, as we're learning to serve, I think it's only right that we pray because we need Jesus' help to do it. And so would you please bow your heads and, and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you serve us so extravagantly. That you took the risk, that you paid the price, also that we could live. And Lord, we, we, we confess that oftentimes we, we forget that. We somehow get disconnected from your serving heart. There are ways in which we've, we've looked at the risks and said the risks are too great and we've walked right by the need. We've looked at the cost and said it's too high to pay and we haven't met it. Lord, we, we, we know that you forgive us and what we would ask is this week... We ask that you would help us to serve the way you serve. That we would see each day not as something to check off our list, but as an invitation from you to walk with you as you meet the needs of the world around us. Give us eyes to see them and hearts to serve them. We ask all this in your name, you who are indeed our loving and servant king. Amen.